Will you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm number one, Psalm number one. The guys have some Bibles. If you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll give you one of those. And it's marked for you at Psalm number one. And keep that Bible, bring it back with you each week as we look at God's Word together. It's our gift to you. Psalm number one. Professing Christian people are too often awed by non-Christians. That is, we look at them and we want what they have, and it's what causes us to do what they do to get it. For instance, they have political power that we crave, and so we reason you have to fight fire with fire if you're going to be successful. So if that means compromising our testimony to promote those whose lives contradict it, we're all too often willing to do it. Or we see what non-Christians have materially. We're jealous of it. We want it. So we adopt their workaholic habits to acquire it. Or we see the lights that dazzle, the laughter, the sensuality, the seemingly carefree dispositions, and we're drawn to pursue it, to look like it, to, to imitate it. And you see this struggle in Scripture. Job's asked, Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not on them. And he goes on to say in Job 21, They send forth their children as a flock, their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of the timbrel and the lyre. They make merry to the sound of the pipe. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. Yet they say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? What would we gain by praying to Him? Or consider what the writer of Hebrews said about Moses, who chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There is the contrast between the experiences of the people of God and those around them. The one being mistreated, the other indulging and enjoying, and there's the temptation toward it that Moses resisted, but that we all face. And today from Psalm 1, we'll see the contrast between two kinds of people. And in the title of today's message that's at the top of the outline that you should have received as you enter today, we'll see the contrast between two ways to live. Let's bow then and ask God to help us. Father, thank you for your grace to us in allowing us to be in your presence, to be together with your people, to have your book open before us. Thank you, Lord, for communicating to us. We thank you that you have not left us to figure out life on our own, but rather you, the creator, the giver of life, have given us your guidebook for life in Holy Scripture. And so we thank you that we have these sacred moments now to consider what you have said about how we, all of us, must align our lives with you and your purposes. Help us to do that today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, last week, we began a series in the book of Psalms. If you weren't here, 
I encourage you to listen to that message this week because it introduces important matters that are going to affect our understanding of the Psalms that we're going to study in the months ahead. You can hear all of our messages at our website, cbctrenton.com. It's easy to get the book of Psalms wrong because we often isolate the individual Psalms from the overall context of the book. If we fail to see that the entire Psalter is arranged to do what we saw last Sunday, namely to present us with the biblical worldview in all of its entirety, including sin and suffering, if we fail to see that, then we'll wonder what to do with those Psalms that deal with dark themes and the very low places we can find ourselves psychologically and emotionally. Some of those Psalms just lay out the misery and they seem to just leave it at that. But in fact, they're to be connected to the larger context, which does in fact speak to the solution to our experience of life in a fallen world. Psalms is, as I noted last week, about the biblical worldview, the components of which are creation, fall, and redemption. And having presented a fulsome view of each, it then gives reason to respond in praise. And that's why that particular theme of praise is reserved for the last third of the 150 Psalms. But by the time it gets there, it's then effusive in the praise that pours forth, as should be the case with us and our lips and in our lives. Psalms has been helpfully compared to a, a cantata, a cantata in five movements because the 150 individual Psalms are part of an arrangement of five collections. And I showed these for you last week, that you have books one through five, and these are the psalms then that are associated with each of those five. And each of those sections of psalms ends with a doxology, often with the very same wording. We saw that wording last week, and that's one of the ways that we know the parameters, the beginning and the end of each of those collections, each of those books. The intentional structure of psalms is also seen in the fact that the first two serve as an introduction to the entire 150. Psalms 1 and 2 are a kind of prelude for the cantata that follows. It really gets started with the body of the book in Psalm number 3. The connection between Psalms 1 and 2 is so close that some scholars believe they were originally one composition before being split into two separate psalms. I mentioned last week that I've found the book Musing on God's Music by Scott Annual to be helpful in describing the structure of the psalms. We purchased some of those. They're on their way. We'll have them in our resource center next Sunday for any of you who would be interested in a copy. But it points out that in those first two psalms, there's a focus on the blessed at the beginning of Psalm 1 and at the end of Psalm 2, which forms an enclosed unit called an, an inclusio. So the first line of Psalm 1 and verse 1 says, blessed is the one. And then if you were to look at Psalm number 2 and the last verse, verse 12, everybody got something to look at? Because sometimes when I say everybody look, I got like... Half the people looking at me going, why are you looking at me? <laughs> so you're either looking at a page or you're looking at your phone 
And between me, you, and the Lord, we know that you're looking at the verse on your phone and not the scores you missed last night. But the end of Psalm 2, verse 12 said, Blessed are all. So the first psalm starts with blessed is the one, and then Psalm 2 ends with blessed. And then in both, there's a contrast between the righteous and the ungodly. And there's a prediction of the demise of the ungodly in both. In Psalm 1, in verse 6, the way of the wicked leads to destruction. In the last verse of Psalm 2, verse 12 again, your way will lead to your destruction. And the same Hebrew term is used to contrast the thinking of the blessed person who in Psalm number 1 in verse 2, it says, meditates on God's law. And that same Hebrew word is used of the ungodly in Psalm 2 in verse 1, but instead of meditates, it's, transla it's translated plot. So today and next week in Psalms 1 and 2, we're going to see how the book of Psalms, the entire book, is introduced with themes that are going to be seen throughout the Psalter. This morning, Psalm 1 shows what we say in the outline that you should have received, namely, Psalms is realistic. In order to present the biblical view of the world, it's necessary to deal with the bad stuff. The things that we do, the bad things we do, yes, but also the things that are done to us the things that are inflicted on us because we share space with others who are around us but who do not worship our God nor share our values. We are in that phase of our personal salvation history in which we've been freed from the penalty of sin by the payment that Christ has made for it on the cross. And we're freed from the power of sin by the work of God the Holy Spirit within us, giving us an ability that we did not have before we were saved. That ability is to choose right by not only doing the right thing, but doing it for the right reason, the glory of God. And so we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. But we yet lack two things. One is the ability to always choose what is right. And the second is the blessed release from the enticement to sin altogether. That is, we still do not have a perfect internal regulator this side of glory, keeping us from choosing sin. We still have the vestiges of the sin nature within us. And we do have external temptations offered by the world and by worldlings. The penalty of sin has been paid, the power of sin has been broken, but yet we look forward to being removed from the very presence of sin as well. But in the, the here and now, the Bible overall, and Psalms in particular, is realistic about where we are and about what we face. So the book of Psalms is realistic, realistic about, I say, the ubiquity of sinners. The ubiquity of sinners. You say, I don't often use the word ubiquity. I wondered about using that in the outline. And every now and then, I just want to give you a word that will allow you, when you're at dinner with relatives and you're arguing about something, to win the argument just by giving a word that nobody else knows. 
I've been practicing that for years. Just throw one out there and everyone else is dumbfounded and you get to move on. So use ubiquity sometimes. What it is is that those who oppose God are everywhere, ubiquitous. Everywhere in our world. Notice that the very first verse of this book mentions the ungodly three times. Verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. It mentions the wicked, sinners, mockers. A realistic perspective on the blessed life means that it's going to be found, if at all, in the presence of those who oppose it. If we're going to have and pursue the, ble the blessed life, it is going to be done in the midst of people who are around us who oppose it. And this is so important to understand and to accept and to face that it's not only a prominent feature in the first two introductory psalms, starting in Psalm 3, you see the battle against moral opposition. Psalm number 3 in verse 1. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Life in a fallen world is such that the psalmist cries out to God then in Psalm number 4 and verse 1. Answer me when I call you my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Psalm 5 speaks of the arrogant and those who do wrong. And so it begins with, give me relief from my distress. And then Psalm number 7. Psalm number 7, first verse. Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. And so at the very beginning, in the very first verse of the first psalm, we're given a realistic view of what it means to live the blessed life. It's going to have to be done in the presence of opposition. We're being made to understand that there are only two kinds of people in the world, and you see this throughout not only the Psalms, but throughout the rest of the Word of God. There are only two kinds of people in the world, those who follow Christ and everyone else. And we who follow Christ are always in the minority. Jesus said in the famous Sermon on the Mount, Wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, many enter through it. Small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Only a few. Sobering, isn't it? I have heard people talk about the eventual rapture of the church from the earth. The idea that the, the rapture occurs at a time we know not and Christians are removed from, from the earth and that this is going to happen and there are just going to be millions upon millions of people that just disappear from the earth. The truth of the matter is I have no idea how many people are Christians on the earth right now. The truth of the matter is, I really don't know how many people in this room are Christians. 
It's possible to be in church, to be a church member, and not be a child of God. You see, to be born again, to belong to God throughout Scripture is the minority position. And throughout church history, it's been an extreme minority position. And so pervasive is the presence of moral opposition that more than 120 of the 150 psalms mention that opposition. And the basic Hebrew root word for wickedness is used 90 times, and that does include other terms like the scornful, enemies, foes, and so on. And so, friends, it means that the good life, the blessed life, the godly life is not lived in the absence of trouble, but rather in the midst of it. We will one day be out of this world and in the new earth that we saw in our heaven series just a few weeks ago. But in the meantime, the only way out of this world is through this world. And we're surrounded by it. And here's what that means then practically for us. Isolation is impossible. And isolation for the purpose of godliness is impossible. Just ask every homeschooled or Amish or fundamentalist child who was raised in those ways specifically to keep him or her from the influence of the wicked only to discover that the internal heart will gravitate to the external temptation if the heart is not captured by something, yea, someone better. I'm not criticizing, believe me, homeschooling. I think it's great if done right and for the right reasons. But there is no escaping evil within that gravitates toward the evil without that's all around us, even in a homeschool co-op, a church youth group, literally wherever. Many have pointed out over the years that this first verse of the book of Psalms depicts a progression of influence and familiarity and and of acquiescence. It starts with walking in step with the wicked, it says. That is, you first find yourself in agreement with what's presented by the wicked, and so you're willing to entertain going their way. You're sympathetic to the deliberations and the advice of those outside Christ, and so you wonder about ordering your life according to what they're selling. It's sometimes translated, therefore, walking in the counsel of the wicked. You're being counseled. I'm being counseled all the time. Do you all know that? You're being counseled every hour of every day during your week. You're being counseled by your neighbors. You're being counseled by your coworkers. You're being counseled by the billboards. You're being counseled by the media. You're being counseled by the politicians. You're being counseled. You're being instructed. You're being drawn toward what other people are selling. You're being counseled. I'm being counseled all the time about what the good life is. And if you are not secure in your own position, you will give eye and ear and foot and heart to a direction other than the Lord's. And the verse moves from walking to standing. 
verse 1. That is, stationing yourself with sinners, those for whom evil is habitual, for whom wickedness is a way of life. And so having been counseled, it's not that bad. I'll put my toe in. I'll start walking with. And then you're hanging out with, standing with, stationing yourself with. And then you find yourself, thirdly, sitting, that is, settling yourself in the company of mockers, it says. Mockers, those who ridicule God and defiantly reject His law. And so there is this progression in the wrong direction. One commentator has said, helpfully, the difference between a righteous person and a wicked person is not that a righteous person wants to prosper and a wicked person does not. All people want to prosper. The fundamental difference between the two, as the opening verses of Psalm 1 explain, is our conception of what blessedness will look like, and in particular, what forms that conception. Verse 1 describes this like a path, something we walk along that shapes our journey. It says, walks not. Or the verse pictures it as sort of counsel, advice that shapes your conception. These are all pictures of influences that shape a person's life, that shape his conception of what it means to be prosperous. Verse 1 of Psalm 1 says that the life of a righteous person is not going to be shaped by the way wicked people conceive of prosperity. The verse is not just talking about, now hear this, avoiding overtly sinful influences, like don't listen to people who say murder is acceptable. The reality is that ungodly counsel doesn't always appear on its face to be wicked. The path of sinners, especially if their way is prospering, doesn't always appear to be sinful. Sometimes, in fact, it looks like blessedness. Sometimes it looks like power, wealth, influence, fame, and fortune. Wickedness, even in the Psalms, is not always presented as a sort of notorious evil like murder or adultery. The Psalms use this language to describe anyone who does not submit to God and live like he is in control. The very nature of wickedness and the very nature of wicked counsel is that the wicked conceive of blessedness and prosperity as life apart, hear this, from any acknowledgement of God. Their very image of what it means to flourish is prosperity apart from God. It's like the people that Job observed in Job 21. Everything seems to be going fine with them, but they say, why should we pray to God? Why should we acknowledge God? And yet it all seems to be going fine. In other words, the contrast in the Psalms is not necessarily between you, a righteous person seeking a blessed life in the Lord, contrasted with the violent criminals who are looting cities and murdering innocent civilians. Rather, the contrast is between you and your next-door neighbor, who's a good citizen, raises his children to be kind and helpful, is living a pretty good life apart from God. And really, as you think about it, which counsel is more tempting for us? The counsel of violent rioters who say, hey, come with us and burn things down and harm people. Or the counsel of a neighbor who says, wouldn't it be nice to just sleep in on Sunday morning? And have a relaxing day out at the lake. Who needs God? I do that every week, says the neighbor, by their actions 
and I am prosperous, successful, I'm living a good life without God, why not join me? A righteous person will not walk in that sort of counsel, and a righteous person will not allow his life, that is his path, to be shaped and formed by that way, that image of a good life, that image of a prosperous life apart from submission to God and obedience to God. See, friends, that's what we're called to do, is walk the path that God has laid out for us, for the blessed life, for indeed the good life, but it's in the midst of temptations toward another path. And in the very first psalm, you see that in the very first verse, and you see it throughout the psalms and throughout the Word of God. Psalms is realistic. It's realistic about the ubiquity of sinners everywhere, but it's also realistic about the outcome for sinners. Because the outcome for sinners results in abject failure. Verse 4, the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. Chaff that the wind blows away. Now that's in contrast in verse 4 to what's said about the blessed, and we'll look a bit at what's said about the blessed a little bit later. But here the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. This is a reference to the kind of harvesting process that took place in, in ancient Canaan. One scholar lays out how that happened, saying that it took place in April and May, barley first and then wheat a few li- weeks later, and it involved a number of steps. It involved cutting the ripened standing grain with hand sickles. That was usually done by men. And then after that, binding the grain into sheaves, which was usually done by women. And then there was a time for gleaning. You all remember gleaning from the book of Ruth? And Ruth was following behind the harvesters and anything that they left behind that they were able, she was able to take, any of the poor and destitute. That was the gleaning. But then there was the transporting of the sheaves to what was called the, the threshing floor, often by a donkey, sometimes by a cart, and then after that, the threshing itself, that is loosening the grain from the straw, that was usually done by the treading of of cattle, sometimes by toothed toothed, uh, threshing sledges or wheels of, on the wheels of carts, but then the process of winnowing occurred, and that was done by tossing the grain into the air with winnowing forks so that the wind, which usually came up for a few hours in the afternoon, blew away the straw and the chaff, leaving the grain at the winnower's feet. That's how light and useless chaff is. You toss the grain up, and it's the stuff that gets blown away. That's how light it is. And then the sifting of the grain to remove residual foreign matter, and then bagging for transportation and storage. And so chaff here in verse 4 is worthless. It has no lasting value. It has no stability. Therefore, verse 5, the wicked will not stand in judgment. 
That is, the wicked have lived lives that perhaps on the surface look like they're successful, look like they're prosperous, but all of that apart from God. And so therefore, because of that, they will not stand in the judgment. They will not be able to withstand God's wrath when He judges. God made this world for Himself and for His glory, and all people were made to return that glory to Him. And all who live apart from Him will stand at the judgment without excuse before Him. So verse 5 says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The assembly is the worshiping assembly at God's sanctuary. For us today, we call that church. Nor sinners in the assembly, in the, in the church of the righteous. That is, because of the ubiquity of sin and sinners around us in the path that God has called out and marked out for His people, there must be some place that those who want to follow God can go to have a respite from the presence of the wicked. Imperfect though that place is, the assembly at God's sanctuary, God's called out people that comprise his church. And so I say to you, friends, that Psalm number one is telling us from the very outset how important it is for you and for me to have our people, our people that we are with, our people that we're with on a regular basis, our people that we look forward to being with because we have that respite from all of the ungodliness that's going on around us. Because that's true, I must have, you must have this place to go that is that respite, that rest from the presence of the wicked. The outcome for sinners then results in abject failure and it results in awful fruit. Verse 6 says of the wicked, their way leads to destruction. We think people are getting away with going their own way because we fail to remember, friends, the future and the big picture. If God is the key issue for every person, and He is, then those who reject God, in fact, get what they want. But what they don't realize is what they want, namely, life apart from God, also results in its natural path and its natural end to a kind of hell and ultimately a literal hell. So the fact that a person apart from God can look prosperous on the outside and successful and everything is going fine is simply a matter of God's common grace that they fail to use in order to turn to God and ultimately it will lead to destruction. So don't be fooled. Psalms is realistic, and I say in your outline, it's optimistic. And you say, well, I'm glad to hear that, because if we're going to have several months of this depressing stuff, it's realistic, but thanks be to God, it's optimistic. It shows what we were made for and how what we were made for is restored. 
It's optimistic about, I say in the outline, the uniqueness of the blessed. Verse 2, the blessed ones delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on His law day and night. To be blessed literally means to be in a state of well-being, to flourish, to truly prosper. It's what we might call the good life. And so the blessed person is blessed. They have this this well-being because one of the things that they do is they have a heart's delight in the law of the Lord, and they meditate on His law day and night. This is what all people desire. We all want to flourish. But as we've seen, those outside of Christ want to flourish apart from Christ. We know what results in human flourishing as Christians. We know what the true good life is, what it's like, because God has given it to us in His Word, what it looks like, what the values are that come from our heart and then show themselves in the way we think and talk and and act. We know what human flourishing is. That's why we take some of the moral positions that we take among the culture. The reason that we are opposed to things like same-sex marriage should not be because we despise the people who are involved in that or because we think we're better. It should not be that. The reason is it doesn't lead to human flourishing. It's not the way it was designed. We know what leads to human flourishing. And so we want that for ourselves. We pursue that for ourselves. But we also, in love, want that for other people. We know what results in human flourishing or what some call shalom. Hebrew word, probably the one Hebrew word most of us know. It can mean hello and goodbye, like aloha, but it also means peace. And it means to be at peace with God, with ourselves, and with our world. And it's precisely what results in the blessed life. Having a right relationship with God, having a right understanding of ourselves and of our world. It means ultimately universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts are fruitfully employed. It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. In other words, this blessed state is the way things ought to be. It's the way they were made to be. And the person in that state is so because they delight in the law of God and meditate on it. When it says the law of God, some of you are thinking of the Ten Commandments of Moses. Maybe you're thinking of the first five books of your Bible, the Pentateuch, sometimes called the Torah or the the law. Certainly it includes that. But law is used in the Bible at times and in the book of Psalms to refer to the entirety of the Word of God. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's not even just the first five law books. But rather, it is the entirety of the Word of God in whom the blessed person delights and they meditate 
on it. They think about and apply it to all of life. So Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 famously says that you are to impress these truths upon your children and you're to do that when you wake up and when you lie down and when you walk along the road. You all remember that? And so you're, you're thinking about it and you're talking about it. Yes, to yourself, to your spouse, to your children. And that person, verse 3, is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. may not be that it prospers as we would like in this life, but we see the big picture. We see the end. We know that ultimately all that godly people do does indeed prosper. And in contrast to that vulnerability and instability of the wicked, the righteous here are stable. They are what Jesus called the salt of the earth. And all others require that stability and that invulnerability on the part of the righteous in order to do their wickedness. The wicked <laughs> require the righteous in order to be able to do their wickedness. The only reason that people can go their own way, like the prodigal, and sow their wild oats is because somebody's still mining the farm. Someone is still stable. The stable make wandering possible, but the wanderers don't realize it until they get to the end of their path like the prodigal did. And you see it, that story, over and over again in human experience. You see it in the arts. When our girls were growing up, I saw the videos of Anne of Green Gables dozens of times. I became an Anne of Green Gables fan. And some of you are familiar with that, but Anne leaves, ultimately leaves home because she has this dream of the tall, handsome, rich guy that she's going to marry. And so she leaves her, her home, and she, in fact, meets that guy. And it comes then to the point of him making a proposal to her. He's in love with her. He's going to ask her to marry him. And then it finally hits her, and she says, no. My heart is ultimately back home. And she goes back home, and home is still there because somebody is still mining the farm. Or in the words of that great theologian, Bon Jovi, I spent 20 years trying to get out of this place. I was looking for something I couldn't replace. I was running away from the only life I've ever known. Who says you can't go home? There's only one place they call me their own. Well, you're able to go home if there's somebody still there. You're able to go home if somebody is still stable. And friends, you only have so many breaths that you're going to be able to draw using the air that God gave you to breathe to do your own thing. And so you're going to need to come back to home. You're going to need to come back to the place that we've all left 
to go a path other than the path that God has made for us. Let me just speak for a few moments to parents. Parents, one of the best things that you can do for your children is to teach them how privileged they are to be in a Christian family. You see, we're the minority, but we are manifold more blessed. And we need to communicate that to our children. We live differently, we have different priorities, and it's better. It's weird, but it's better. It's different, but it's better. And you communicate that to your children. A good God has put you under the authority of good parents who He has placed in your life to lead you in His good way. And you delight in it. You tell them how much you delight in it. And it can be contagious, and we pray that God will change them then from the inside out so that they want what we have. Jesus said, we're blessed even when you're, we're cursed. How can that be? It's because... It's evidence that we are part of the fellowship of the redeemed. That we indeed have this minority privilege. Too many parents fail to communicate that this is life. This life, this Christian life is life. And we rejoice in it genuinely. We pray that that shapes the heart so that the heart wants what God has given us to live. So Psalms is optimistic about the uniqueness, the privileges of the blessed, and lastly, about the fruit of the blessed. Verse 6, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. When it says watches over, it's literally, the Hebrew word is God knows the way of the righteous. He's marked it out. They're going the path that He has given them to go, and so Knowing it, he's watching over it, caring for it. God knows us now, knows us in the life pathway that we are on, and because of that, he will know us in the end. And so this blessed state is experienced in, in a multidimensional way. It's complete well-being. It's physical, psychological, social, and spiritual. And it, and it all flows from one's relationships being put right with God, within yourself, and with others as well. And that only happens through the Lord Jesus. And so I want to end by offering you an opportunity. As I said at the beginning, I have no way of knowing who in this room has a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Who in this room is the blessed person that delights in the law of God and who has that kind of stable life can pass that on to the next generation. And so I want to offer you an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ, who is our peace. He is the one through whom this blessing comes, making us right with God, having the right identity for ourselves so that we can be at peace with others. And so how do we do that? We realize that you're a sinner. And you recognize that Christ died for your sins. You repent. Christ died for my sins to pay that penalty, but I repent because, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm no longer going to be the prodigal going my own way. 
and you receive Jesus Christ into your life, praying from your heart to him, Lord, I am that wanderer. I realize that I'm a church-going wanderer. But nevertheless, my church-going simply masks what I really want and the life I'm really pursuing. It's all moral on the outside, but you are not the center of it because I've never been changed from the inside out by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I realize that sin going my own way. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross for me. I'm going to give my life to you and go your way, not my way. Thank you for saving me. Here's your take-home truth. God's people are exceptionally blessed among all people. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to look into this first psalm that establishes the themes that we will see throughout the book of Psalms. We thank you, Lord, for the blessed life that you have given to those who know you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that this is truly life, the abundant life. We will have eternal life with you, but in the here and now, Our values are different. Our priorities are different. Our allegiances are different. Lord, help us to have the discernment to see the difference, to live in a different way, even in contrast to our neighbors who may be good people, relatively speaking, but who are going their own way and using your world for their own purposes. May we raise our children that way as well. And Lord, may you be pleased to use us to show people the kind of life for which you made humanity to bring glory to yourself. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand together now for a closing song.